0: butts and guts a cleveland clinic podcast exploring your digestive and surgical health from end to end hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of butts and guts i'm your host scott Steele, the chair of colorectal surgery here at the cleveland clinic in beautiful cleveland ohio and i'm very pleased today to have a dual threat if you will going to talk about cleveland clinic's pediatric inflammatory bowel disease program so first Jacob Korowski is a pediatric gastroenterologist at Cleveland Clinic Children's, and Jessica Philpott, an adult care gastroenterologist at Cleveland Clinic. And these two together work in a transition clinic to kind of ease children from pediatric to adult centered care beginning around 18 years old and into their early 20s, depending on the individual. So thank you both for joining us and welcome to Butts and Guts.
1: So happy to be here.
0: Thank you so much for having us. First, we always like to start off with each of our guests to give us a little bit about your background where are you from, where did you train, and how did it come to that you're here at the Cleveland Clinic? So, Dr. Philpott, why don't you start us off?
1: Well, hi. So, yeah, um, as I, I've been a gastroenterologist here at the clinic now for 10 years, and um, I trained at Ohio State and then in Oklahoma and Texas. Um, I think my interest in pediatric GI, because obviously I'm an adult gastroenterologist, um, stems from the family, as my husband is actually a pediatric gastroenterologist, and I think that's where I first became interested in transitional care for um, IBD patients. And so I think it's a very important area because, and we'll talk a lot more about this, but patients that are diagnosed as children eventually will grow up to be adults and they have to come into adult care. Um, And so this is one of my particular focus, foci, I guess I would say, clinically.
2: Jacob, how about yourself? So I am a Cleveland native. Uh, I also did my uh, medical school at Ohio State. And then I did residency and fellowship both at Northwestern uh, University in Chicago. Um, And I quickly became interested in pediatric IBD uh, upon starting GI fellowship. And then um, once I finished, I was looking to move back uh, to Cleveland for family purposes. The Cleveland Clinic was a great opportunity to expand kind of my IBD clinical care and practice, along with a lot of research opportunities uh, that have been afforded to me. And um, so it was a great opportunity in the city that I already had wanted to be in. There was a great opportunity for me here. And then quickly after joining, Dr. Phil Philpott reached out to me, which was uh, about six or seven years ago now, about starting to collaborate on transitional care. And we started to uh, write some uh, literature together and uh, publish several papers and then uh, formally put together a transition clinic.
0: Well, we're so glad to have you both here. And as a fellow Big Ten member, a lot of Big Ten blood running through here. So uh, Jessica, we'll start off with you. Can you give our listeners, we've had some you know, people talk about IBD, but you know, our listeners may not have listened to all of them. So Can you give a little refresher, a little bit of a 10,000-foot view level of what is inflammatory bowel disease?
1: Yes, certainly. So um, inflammatory bowel disease actually encompasses a a number of disorders all all under one umbrella. But basically, um, they're autoimmune conditions of the intestines. And the two main forms that we deal with are Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Um, In both of these situations, a dysfunctional immune reaction uh, with the flora of the intestines are results in uh, damaging inflammation in the intestinal lining. There's a wide range of symptoms that may result from these disorders, but largely patients will have diarrhea, may have abdominal pain, weight loss, anemia. And each year we have a better idea of how to treat them. But the mainstay of our medical treatment are immunosuppressive therapies that help us not take away the immune system, but shift its course so it's not as destructive.
0: And Jacob, can you give us a little bit of an overview on Cleveland Clinic Children's Inflammatory
2: Bowel Disease Program? Absolutely. So the Cleveland Clinic Children's has been taking care of uh, pediatric IBD for decades. Over the last several years, we have implemented a formal program. Um, really to streamline and formalize the process for patients when they come here, to making sure that they really are receiving uh, multidisciplinary, uh, high-end care, including not just uh, thinking about the physician and the patient, but also care coordinators, uh, nutritionists or dietitians, uh, our pediatric and adult colorectal surgeons, social work, psychology, all kind of under one program, working together. And so bringing all these different aspects together allows us to address all of the different needs um, a child may need in addition to just their medical care, uh, including uh, their mental health, nutrition, and the the impact on the entire family that occurs when a child is diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease.
0: Jessica, we know there's kind of different peaks in terms of onset within IBD itself, but... How common are inflammatory bowel disease issues in children or maybe even into this transition state?
1: I think that's a moving target. There's actually recently published an article knowing that we continue to note an increase in incidence in children. About 25% of patients who develop IBD develop that in childhood or late adolescence. So um, at least a quarter of our patients will be diagnosed at an early age.
0: Jacob, truth or myth? If a person is diagnosed with IBD, it's likely this diagnosis occurs when they're still
2: a child. So I think, as Dr. Philpott pointed out, that about a quarter of patients are diagnosed before they're 20 years of age. I think if you look at the overall burden in inflammatory bowel disease, a lot of them may start even with symptoms in childhood before they're actually diagnosed in their 20s and what we might not consider a pediatric onset disease, but it's still very young. And if you look at any of the kind of risk criteria for what is high-risk disease, anybody diagnosed before even 30 years of age is going to be considered is a high-risk modifier for having a long-term disease burden for the disease. So um, a little bit of of both. I would say not everybody is diagnosed uh, in childhood, but it definitely tends to be a, a larger burden when it is diagnosed in childhood. Yeah, you touched a little bit about this one. So Jessica,
0: truth or myth, IBD symptoms are more aggressive in children than in adults.
1: So unfortunately, it is true that patients that are diagnosed at an earlier age are higher risk for more destructive disease. So when I'm assessing a patient as an adult, there's a number of factors I assess in order to really assess what their prognosis is. And being diagnosed at a young age certainly can predict more aggressive disease. And that means I need to be more aggressive in terms of making sure I manage it well. And I think the second aspect to that is that when individuals uh, develop inflammatory bowel disease at an uh, age when they should be uh, growing and achieving their full height, it can have a permanent impact on them. And that's why I'm so glad I have, um, you know, heroes and colleagues such as Dr. Kraski to really identify this disease early and treat it to avoid those um, side effects of having the disease.
0: So to the both of you, you know, it's very nerve wracking to go to the doctor's office, especially if you're dealing with children in some cases. So what can a parent and their child expect during their initial appointment when they come to visit either one of you or another member of your team here within our IBD program?
2: Yeah. So we expect a a full comprehensive evaluation, whether or not uh, they've been diagnosed yet. Certainly there are a large number which we have a high suspicion um, that they are going to be a diagnosis and we start to prepare them leading into um, an endoscopy. And, you know, this, the disease Um, requires quite a bit of care outside of just the initial visit and the follow-up visits. And so what we want to kind of do is welcome them into the program and understand that they are not alone and that there is a huge team behind what we do to help take care of them. And that we're going to take it one step at a time, one day at a time and address all their questions and all their needs and look at each child individually and address what we can point by point for that child. There are certainly different variations within the disease and finer points in which there's not a one size fits all plan for each patient and their um, nuances as both a science and an art form um, as we do in medicine. And so it is a lifelong diagnosis. And while it can be scary, we want to provide um, a lot of reassurance. I want to let people know that, that we want their child to live a long, healthy, happy life. And that I want them to have whatever dreams and plans they had for their life and that the parents have for the child, that we're going to try not to disrupt that. We're going to try to maintain all of that. And that as we move through the process, you know, a gastroenterologist and the IBD team is going to be involved uh, throughout the throughout the course. But we're going to support them every step of the way.
1: And to add that um, when I will first come in contact with them often is, in our joint uh, transition clinic, and and that's a different position. So Jake's talking about when they're first coming in to be diagnosed. But another critical part of care of individuals that develop inflammatory bowel disease as children is that at some point they will transfer their care to adult uh, gastroenterology, and that is a little bit different setup because we're addressing different needs. Um, And what the transition clinic that uh, Dr. Kraski and I have developed is designed to try and help facilitate that process for patients that might have challenges to transferring to adult medicine. So for our transition clinic, what will happen is it's a joint visit. And so both Dr. Kraski and I will be there at the visit. Um, In the process of the visit, we'll kind of review the entire history of what they've been through, um, how they're doing currently, and then come up with a plan to help transition them to the adult care uh, world. So we'll assess if they have any psychological needs, if they'll need some assistance with that. So we have an adult psychologist that can assist with the needs of, you know, for anxiety, depression, things of that nature, if they'll need a nutrition consult, uh, what procedures they'll need. And we try and educate them about the differences between adult medicine and pediatrics. Um, And one of the important parts is to educate the patient and their family members as to why it is important eventually to transfer to adult care because we provide care that's necessary to adults um and we specialize in that area.
0: Yeah so understanding that we all play a you know various roles in terms of every patient's care is this something that they need to check in with their specialists only when there's a flare is this more like a continuity.
2: Yeah so absolutely a continuity of care. So after diagnosis, we'll see the patient several times in the first one to two months, sometimes even more frequently, depending on what complications or issues may arise. And then the goal is to have somebody in remission um, as quickly as possible. But certainly I want to see a patient at least every three to four months at a minimum of every six months. The only advantage to one of the few advantages we've seen from the pandemic is it really has accelerated telehealth. And so a lot of times I'm touching base with patients even a little bit more often when we can do virtual visits mixed in with in-person visits. If patients are coming for infusions, then certainly there's an opportunity to see them there as well. But um, I want to be involved every step of the way uh, for the duration of their disease while they're under our care um, in children's. Now, it we certainly want the primary care doctors involved. I am not taking the place of of anybody's primary care physician. So your regular coughs, colds, bumps, bruises, everything like that, you would still go. Uh, encourage people to keep contact with their with their pediatrician or family practice physician, and certainly we're sending them um, all of our notes and communicating as regularly as as possible. Uh, but we want to keep a close eye um, um, on patients for various reasons uh, as the disease has impact. Uh, not only just their medical needs, but also their mental health and other areas, which they arise at different time points in somebody's life. So, you know, while a patient might be diagnosed at eight, what they perceive at eight is going to be very different than what they perceive at 12 and 14 and 15. And as they evolve, uh, psychologically, those are other neat reasons that we want to touch base with them on a frequent basis. In addition to the medical care that they need as they're growing, we want to make sure that their growth is, um, as as expected, especially if they were behind to begin with because of the disease. So routine care is going to be, is going to be very much important for them.
0: Jessica, I want to dig in a little deeper about something you briefly brought up, and that's kind of that transition for teenagers in the program. So what does that transition entail, and are there some differences in terms of how the treatment goes or the care pathways that you use for that kind of that teenage into early adulthood?
1: Absolutely. So, And I think there's two elements to this change in um, progression of care. And I think what's actually most important is that as people age, most of them will assume independence and they'll begin to manage their care. So most of the time when one's diagnosed as a child, their parents are going to be driving their care. They're going to be making decisions, doing most of the interactions with the providers um, as they come into adult medicine. And, uh, at that point, they're also becoming adults, and more and more, our expectation is going to be that they'll actually be managing their care. Now, they can still certainly have the assistance and the involvement of any family members that they want, but really the assumption of healthcare care independence is a gradual process. It's not a cutoff. So patients need to assume the tools that they need in order to be independent, and that means understanding their disease, understanding themselves, their medications, and that truly is a gradual process. And that starts really uh, in early to late teens in uh, pediatric clinics. So they start to educate them with each visit and assess how ready they are to assume healthcare independence. So that's a gradual process. The actual transfer of care going from pediatrics to adult usually is a discrete event, So again, either in our case, they often meet with us in a transition clinic, and then the next visit they'll make will be with the adult provider in the adult clinic. And that is different for different patients. So for some patients, um, they're already very independent, they're already working, and that may be, again, a very easy and quick change. For some people, if they um, have, you know, very aggressive disease or they've had trouble managing some of those things, again, that may be more of a gradual process where they need more assistance in developing those skills to be the main driver of their care when they come into adult medicine.
2: And just to piggyback on that, um, we have uh, implemented an annual uh, wellness visit starting at 12 years old for all of our patients in which they, they'll they come once a year. So a, one of their regular visits will be um, a little bit longer visit in which they'll meet not only with their physician, but with a care coordinator uh, who's going to go over transition of responsibility that it's age appropriate. So we have uh, different uh, benchmarks that have been developed Through our National Pediatric GI Association, along with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, or what are things you should be doing at different ages to try to slowly ease that transition of responsibility in a timely fashion? So far before a patient turns 18, even starting at 12 years old. We want to make sure: Can they do basic things like starting to learn their medications? Can they even just take their temperature? You know, how would they get a hold of a physician if, for some reason, um, you know, mom or dad were not available? Just even putting a physician's phone number in their phone. Every every kid over twelve or thirteen years old has an iPhone or has some type of uh, has some type of uh, cellular device and often our phone number is not in their phone. They have everybody else in there. But we want to make sure that we're doing those little things so that they understand that they are going to be responsible for their own care starting at an early age.
0: What's on the horizon as far as research into better managing EBIT for both children and adults?
1: So I think eventually what's aspirational is someday we would like to be able to prevent or to cure inflammatory bowel disease. So that's something that we'll always continue to work for, but that probably will take quite some time. I think what's more short-term, and I think we can expect in the next decade, will be more personalized medicine. So each year we have a new um, a number of new medications available to treat these disorders. But in order to identify which person will do best with which medication, is something that we're developing better tools with. So um, we can identify um, the... Optimal therapy for each person?
2: Yes, I think personalizing the care is really where the field is going to both cure and prevent the disease um, through a number of prognostic biomarkers and through certainly different serum, intestinal, and stool biomarkers that will kind of help us really tailor therapy to each individual. And the new therapies that are coming out are, are, for the most part, very targeted. Obviously, we'd like to get away from anything that's infusion-based and so that things can be delivered at home a lot easier than having to come to an infusion center, as that certainly takes a lot of time up for patients and places uh, of... Uh, burden um, on them for school and for work. Um, So certainly there is a lot more on the horizon for care uh, for both pediatric and adult IBD. Along with our very early onset IBD patients, we're finding more and more genes or monogenic defects related to early onset IBD that can also be targeted as well. So it's certainly um, a lot of hope. That's
0: fantastic and exciting stuff. And we always like to end with getting to know our guests a little bit better. So we'll go back and forth. So Jessica, what's your favorite food?
1: Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> I'll have to say uh, pizza.
2: Great, Jacob. Mm, uh, I'm going to go with a, a Texas style brisket.
0: Very nice. So Jacob, we'll lead with you now. What's your favorite sport?
2: Unfortunately, it's football. My wife is a neurologist. It doesn't want my my children playing, but um, for better or worse, I'm a Browns fan, and football is still number one. Jessica?
1: Well, certainly for participation, I prefer to ski. So can't find me, I'm on the mountains.
0: Yep, absolutely. And so, Jessica, now to you. So tell us about maybe your favorite place that you've visited or traveled to.
1: So again, I, I, every time, chance I get, I'm going to head to the mountains. I grew up in Colorado, so the Rocky Mountains are closest to my heart. Um, but there's always something new to do there and see.
2: Sure. I love the mountains as well, um, I would say. And I, I second the, the skiing aspect, um, although I'm still a bit of a beginner. But I'll say any national park in the United States would be a favorite place. And then finally, to
0: the both of you, You've been around the world, probably, and to various places across the U.S. What do you like about here in Northeast Ohio?
1: I have to say I love the people in Northeast Ohio. I, they're a mixture of true friendliness and yet common sense. And I like being in the middle. Like We're equidistant, basically, between Chicago and New York, so, but our traffic isn't nearly as bad.
2: I second the lack of traffic. It's, it's fantastic having spent six years in Chicago where it takes an hour and a half to go 10 to 15 miles anywhere. Uh, Cleveland offers a little bit of everything. Um, I, I love the food scene here um, and the theater. Um, you know, so I would say it offers a lot from a cultural standpoint uh, in addition to uh, great medical care.
0: That's fantastic. I agree with you. But also, just very quickly, a final take-home message for our listeners regarding this transition time.
2: I I want to uh, just instill for um, everyone that this is certainly a vital part of somebody's life, and it's a vital point in a young adult's life, moving from the pediatric care to adult care. But it makes it a lot easier when I have such great people to work with, like Dr. Philpott on the adult side, is that care at Cleveland Clinic is seamless when we're moving from one area to the next and so a lot of reassurance and um, and a lot of hope.
1: I agree. I, I think it's, it's very hopeful, and I think every change that people go through is frightening at first to some extent, um, but it offers new opportunities, and so I think it opens vistas of things that one wasn't expecting, and I think it's also important whenever you encounter change to understand that Even this, like a transfer of care from pediatrics to adult is going to look different for different people. So if one is going through that, you need to give yourself a little bit of time, um, make sure you know what you want out of the situation, and just understand that you can take the time you need and you need to find the situation that you need. So listen to your gut, ask the questions you need to be asked, and that'll help you get where you need to go.
0: That's fantastic. And so to learn more about Cleveland Clinic's Pediatric Inflammatory Bowel Disease Program, please visit clevelandclinicchildrens.org slash IBD. That's clevelandclinicchildrens.org slash IBD. You can also call us at 216-444-5437. That's 216-444-5437. And again, you've heard me say it a million times. Finally, please remember it's important for you and your family to continue to receive medical care Get regular checkups and screenings and rest assured here at the Cleveland Clinic, we're taking all the necessary precautions to sterilize our facilities and protect our patients and caregivers. Thank you both for joining us here on Butts and Guts. Thank you. Thank you. That wraps things up here at Cleveland Clinic. Until next time, thanks for listening to Butts and Guts.